For the last few months, uh, we have been focusing our attention on living as a minority community in a hostile world. And it's been going on, we've been talking about this now for a number of months, I think maybe four months or so. And it's been a heavy uh, kind of series at times. It's really, there's some, some news out there that is not something that we necessarily want to hear. But reality is reality, and we don't, it doesn't make it go away, and it doesn't change it by ignoring it or pretending that it doesn't exist. And throughout the last few months of this series, I have warned you about a coming economic storm. I don't know when, and I don't know exactly how bad, but I can do mathematics, and so I know that it is absolutely unavoidable. It is coming. I have also warned you about increasing cultural hostility towards the Christian faith. That will only grow. It will not lessen. It will not diminish. We have a new president, but good times are not here. So all that was true prior to the election remains absolutely true following the election. So cultural derision, scorn, and hostility will continue to accumulate in this culture against the Christian faith. I can say that with absolute assurity because the Bible makes that perfectly plain. I have also warned about what I believe is the strong possibility of a growing governmental persecution of the Christian church. That too, if history is any reliable guide, is also a coming reality. For the last 2,000 years, The believers have, from time to time, and more often than not, suffered for their commitment to Jesus Christ, sometimes horribly. We can look around the world at brothers and sisters, even today, and see governmental persecution of the people of God. So these things are real. These things are coming. Again, I don't know when, I'm not setting dates, but I'm telling you they are coming. And so in preparation for the tectonic changes that are coming upon the Christian church, to prepare us for that, we have focused for the last number of months upon the Christian life upon the Christian life and the importance of the essential character, qualities, and commitments of the Christian life. We have talked about humility. We have talked about hospitality. We have talked about truth. We have talked about purity. We have talked about prayer. We have spoken of joy and compassion, and disciple-making, and perseverance. And we arrive this morning at the final topic of the series, and that topic is hope. It is hope. Not hope in the sense of some wishful thinking, but hope meaning the settled confidence in the person and the work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. When all around us is sinking sand, Jesus Christ is our hope. And so this morning, that's what we will be looking at. I've saved this message for last in the series because it is only by us understanding Christ as our hope that we can keep our balance, to keep our equilibrium, to maintain our foothold in the coming days. This final letter from the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy, was written sometime around the year A.D. 67-68, right near the end of his life. It is the last written words. It is, the, it is the final words we have from the great Apostle Paul. It is his last will and testament, as it were. Paul finds himself in a Roman prison, contemplating the end of his own days. And so the things he writes are significant. When a person gets near the end of life, uh, at least a thoughtful person, the things that are frivolous, the things that are unnecessary, tend to fall by the wayside, and they become much more serious-minded, much more focused, much more intent on passing on that which is of enduring and eternal value to those that come behind. And so that's what Paul does here in this letter. Now, you remember the book of Acts closes with Paul in a Roman um, imprisonment. Acts chapter 28 speaks of that. That is Paul's first Roman imprisonment. He was there confined in Rome for the years AD 60 to 62. And what Acts indicates to us is that he had remarkable freedoms accorded to him during that captivity. He was free to receive guests as they came and they went, and he was open and able to teach the scriptures. Well, sometime following that, sometime AD 62, thereabouts, uh, Paul got his day in court, as it were, before Caesar, and he was, uh, as all the other Roman authorities before Caesar had determined, he was not guilty of anything worthy of death or imprisonment, and so he was freed, he was released. And he continued on with his, his uh, ministry plans. Sometime after that, he visited Crete and established work there in Crete, later uh, sending Titus there to continue the work of the evangelism and the building of the churches there in the island of Crete. I believe he also visited Spain. That was his stated intention in the 15th chapter of Romans. He said, after I visit with you in Rome and you help me financially, I am going to continue on. It is my desire to continue on to Spain and to bring the gospel further west. So I'm pretty convinced, and I'm not alone in this, their church history uh, provides some support to this, is that the Apostle Paul uh, ended up making it as far as Spain. But the political climate of his day changed radically. On the 19th of July in the year AD 64, 
Because on the 19th of July in the, in the year AD 64, a fire broke out in the city of Rome. This fire, fanned by the winds, burned for days. A week, actually. And in the course of that fire, significant portions of the city of Rome were absolutely destroyed. The fire broke out and spread in the tenement sections, the poor sections of the city. And these tenement buildings made of wood were quickly engulfed in the flames and destroyed. Three entire wards burned to the ground, seven others severely damaged. The loss of life was horrible. The economic devastation, massive. And the people were angry. The persistent rumor was spread that Nero himself, through his agents, had set the fire. This insane, I would say criminally insane, emperor is said to have stood on the, on the balcony of his palace and played the violin, fiddled while Rome burned. The accusation was that he wanted to do a massive urban renewal plan. He wanted to build additional things that would, that would display his glory. And, and there was too much stuff in the way so, so that he authorized his agents to go and basically burn the city so he could rebuild it. That was the persistent rumor. Seeking to divert blame and suspicion from himself and and seeking to turn the, the hostility of the populace away from himself, Nero looked for a scapegoat. And he had a ready made one in the church of Jesus Christ. The believers were already viewed with suspicion by their fellow countrymen. They were strange. They were somewhat secretive. They they kept somewhat to themselves. They spoke about a God that you couldn't see. They refused to participate in the religious festivals and, and national holidays. They were odd. They met, as I say, in secret, often at night, Many from the slave classes. They celebrated a meal called the the agape, the love feast, which debased and perverted minds assumed to involve uh, sexual debauchery. They were accused of being cannibals because they spoke of eating the blood and the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. They called one another brother and sister and exchanged greetings in terms of a kiss. And so they were accused of being incestuous. Those who became associated with their group, it frequently led to problems in their marriages and in their homes. Because their commitment to this unseen God 
was deeper and greater than any other human commitment. Indeed, they, they loved this unseen God more than they loved father or mother or wife or, or brother or sister or children. They chose and preferred Him above all other human relationships. They were despised. They were scorned. They made a great scapegoat. And so Nero effectively transferred the the guilt and the blame upon the Christians. And so the result of that was a massive persecution. The first time that the the believers, that the, the Christians had been persecuted by the Romans... Prior to this, through the book of Acts, you read the book of Acts, and what you see over and over again is that the persecution comes from the Jewish community. And that the Romans, over and over again, when confronted with the church in its first 30 years, basically declare, I find no guilt in them. But it all changes. And the first of ten waves of persecution that will last for the next 200 years fall upon the Christian church. The Christians were rounded up. They were imprisoned. They were forced to flight. Nero, who I say was criminally insane, even had some of those prisoners dipped in pitch, impaled on a pole and lit to light his gardens. The people suffered terribly. And yet they refused to offer the pinch of incense to make the national pledge that Caesar is Lord. Because there is only one Lord, and it is Christ Jesus. And so these people sealed that testimony with their blood. In the persecution, in the rounding up, particularly of the leaders of this hated and despised group, both Peter and Paul were arrested there in Rome. They were placed in a prison. Not a prison like you or I think about, more like a hole in the ground, a cistern. It was called the Mamertine Prison. You can visit it today in Rome. It was dark. It was damp. It was crowded. And it was a place where people were sent waiting to die. Peter was eventually executed. Church history tells us he was crucified upside down in fulfillment of Jesus' words in John 21. The Apostle Paul, being a Roman citizen, was exempted from crucifixion. And his head was severed from his shoulders with a blade of a large sword. And so he passed into the presence of his Lord and Savior. He writes this letter, 2 Timothy, 
to his son in the faith, to Timothy, his ministry partner and companion, this young man who had traveled with him for a couple of decades, whom by this time is in the city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, pastoring the church there in Ephesus, a large and important city, a significant church, and a place of great opposition and hostility. Timothy was not by nature a bold man, and so the Apostle Paul needs to encourage him to stand firm in the face of opposition. Throughout this letter, Paul is repeatedly saying to Timothy, basically, Timothy, you need to be willing to suffer for Christ. Chapter 2 here in verse 3, suffer hardship with me, Timothy. Verse 12, chapter 1, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Timothy, do not be ashamed. Timothy, be willing to suffer hardship for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the hope that lies in Christ. Many have deserted Paul by this time in his life. Former ministry companions have, for one reason or another, deserted him. He finds himself primarily alone. He says, only Luke is with me. And by the way, when when you were a prisoner in the Mamertine prison, uh, it's not a great idea to go visit people there. You don't really want to be identified with people that are imprisoned there because they are considered the worst of the worst. So it's not a great idea to be identified with them. Paul says to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 9, Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. Come to me soon. Paul knows his days are numbered. He doesn't know exactly when, but he knows his days are numbered. Verse 16, chapter 4, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. Bring the books. Verse 13, chapter 4, bring my cloak, come before winter, it's cold, I'm suffering. Bring the scriptures, Timothy, I'm persuaded that included in those scriptures is Matthew's gospel. Bring it to me, Timothy, I find great comfort in these words. But whatever you do, Timothy, suffer hardship with me. Stand firm. Don't wilt. Chapter 2 and verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. 
Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Beloved, I want to look with you at verses 8 through 13 here in chapter 2. And as we look at these verses together, I think we can find here a a three-point harness. A three-point harness that will enable us to stand firm when everything around us is wobbling. A three-point harness. The first fasten point of that that harness is in verses 8 and the first half of verse 9, and it's simply this. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. This will hold your feet firm. Remember the gospel. Paul is trying to help Timothy to stand firm. He wants to help this young pastor to be willing to to suffer the hardship that Paul knows is coming upon him. Right? Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Timothy. This is your future. So help me, or I want to help you get ready for this. And and so the way to get ready for this, Timothy, is to remember something. Continually remember. The the verb here in verse 8, the verb remembers is is a present active imperative. That is, that it's not just something you remember once, but Timothy, it's something that needs to be constantly in your remembrance. Constantly to the front of your thinking. Why? Why would Paul have to tell him that? Well, the answer is simple. It's because Timothy is a, is a man like us, a humanity in which we are incredibly forgetful. When difficult times come, we tend to forget the gospel. And it's the one thing we have to remember. Remember the gospel. Keep on remembering the gospel. 
Now, Paul summarizes here in verse 8 two foundational truths that that encompass the essence of the gospel here. That's why I say that the harness point here is to remember the gospel. And Paul speaks here, it's shorthand for sure, but these two big concepts essentially scoop up and gather up the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, here they are, two points. Number one, risen from the dead. Number two, descendant of David. Jesus, risen from the dead. In other words, Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered death. Remember, Jesus has conquered death. Luke chapter 24 and verse 5, the the women on on Easter morning, that early Sunday morning, they they make their way to the the tomb and they're bringing spices with which to anoint his body, right? And they, they encounter the tomb with the stone rolled away and the angel says to them, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus. And they say, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He's not here. The grave is empty. The tomb is empty. He is the living one. Jesus has conquered death. The verb tense that that Paul uses here where it says Jesus Christ risen from the dead is a perfect tense verb. and, And what that means is that he remains the risen one. This is not a statement about a past event. This is a statement about a continuing reality. It had a a past time with a continuing reality to it. Jesus is the risen one. He is the living one. He has conquered death. Paul is stressing Jesus' complete and final victory over the grave. And beloved, when when death has been conquered, with it, sin has been conquered. Do you understand that? Jesus lives, and because he lives, death has been conquered. It is a defeated foe. And because death is a defeated foe, sin has been conquered. And it is sin that separates humanity. From their creator. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Where you see Paul in that great resurrection chapter. Chapter 15. He makes exactly that point. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The beginning in verse 20. Paul writes here, as I say, in this discussion of the resurrection, the most extended discussion of the resurrection that you can find in the entire Bible. But he says here in verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
Verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Because Jesus lives, I live. Because Jesus lives, if you are his child this morning by faith, if you are in union with the living one by grace through faith, then you live too. Jesus' victory over sin and death is the confidence that we have to stand in the face of whatever is thrown against us. We have won. Our champion has won. He has swept the field. He has dispatched our mortal enemy. Goliath is dead. And the victory is ours. Jesus has conquered death. Turn back to 2 Timothy. Doesn't matter what comes, beloved. Does not matter. Jesus has conquered death. Second foundational truth encompasses the gospel, that, that, that scoops up the gospel. The gospel that Paul says here is according, you know, according to my gospel. In other words, in the way that I preach the gospel, is this statement. Jesus, or, or Christ here, which means Messiah, is the descendant of David. Remember Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, risen from the dead, that is, that he is the eternally living one, is also the descendant of David. Literally, the seed of David. He is the seed of David. Well, what's the big deal about all of that? Well, the big deal about all of that is that through David come the promises of an eternal kingdom and an eternal reign. Go with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, David is now the king. The nation is firmly in his grasp, in his control. He has, he has walked in dependence and faith upon God, while Saul for 20 years has sought to kill him, being himself the right and rightful ruler of Israel, but he was waiting until God intervened, and God does intervene, and Saul is removed, and David is now anointed or brought to the throne, having been anointed 20 years earlier. And David has it in his heart to build a house for God, a, a temple. And he has made extensive preparations for this temple. And the prophet says to him, you know, whatever's in your heart, David, go ahead and do it. This incredible love gift for God. And then God speaks to the prophet and, and sends him back to him. And, and through the prophet Nathan, God says in, in verse 11, David, 
You wanted to make a house for me, but the end of verse 11, the Lord also desires to you, oh, excuse me, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Listen, David, you want to make a house for me? Eh, I'm going to make a house for you. I'm going to make a house for you. And so in verse 16 of this chapter, we find what is called the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant. God had made promises to Abraham, right? Embodied in the Abrahamic Covenant. Those promises were further elaborated in Genesis where where God promises that, that kings would come from you, Abraham. Well, as the promises further elaborated and focused and narrowed, what we come to understand is that the kings will come through the loins of David. And so in verse 16, the Lord says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Here, God promises to David an eternal dynasty. Your house, David. He promises to him an eternal realm, your kingdom, David. And he promises to him an eternal authority, your throne, David, shall be established forever. You will have an eternal dynasty. You will have an eternal realm. And you will have eternal authority through your greater son. Beloved, those promises find their fulfillment in Christ. It is he who is the greater son of David. Those promises passed from generation to generation, from son to son, David to Solomon and beyond. And and it continued. And even as the nation descended into apostasy and, and God sliced off pieces of it, as it were, still he maintained his commitment to David. And his house. And so in the fullness of time, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again. Looks like some of you have figured it out by now. We're not going to make it. That's what happens when you send your notes out as just three headings. We had the headings. We had to work on Friday to fill in the content. 1 Corinthians 15 Pick it up at the end of verse 23 to catch the context. Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he, that is Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. The promise to David finds its fulfillment in Christ. He is the descendant of David. 
And beloved, what that does is what that scoops up is all of the understanding of the kingdom of God and all what it means. We spent years going through Matthew's gospel explaining what it all means and and it all is scooped up in this simple statement, descendant of David. He is the one who ever lives. He is the greater son of David. In him is all authority, all rule. Psalm 110 and verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the gospel. Paul says here, verse 8, 2 Timothy 2. This is the truth that I preach. This is the gospel that I preach. According to my gospel. You read the New Testament and, and, you, and you read Paul's letters and you see his preaching. And, and that's exactly what he preaches. I mean, go to the end of the book of Acts. Acts 28. I mean, the, Luke closes it. He wants us to know what what went on, what's going on, what's Paul about. Verse 30 says, And he, that is Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. Listen, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. What did Paul preach? He preached the kingdom of God and the living king. The one who has conquered death and sin and offers it to you or I if we will but receive it by faith. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, we see it in condensed and encapsulated form there in verse 9. The end of verse 8, Paul says, The word of faith which we are preaching. That is, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Confess with your mouth that he is the greater son of David. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that he is the living one. He is the resurrected one. He is the one who has conquered death. He is the one who has conquered sin. Then you will be what? Saved. The gospel is a declaration of truth that must be believed to be saved. Back to 2 Timothy. Paul says, this is my gospel, verse 8. For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. Paul's saying is because of this gospel, because of these truths that he declares and and he's unwilling to negotiate no matter what that he is now suffering hardship he he says that he is suffering hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal interesting word there criminal 
Its only other occurrence in the New Testament is in Luke 23, where it refers to the two who were crucified either side of Christ. They were criminals. We would say brigands. That is, those that belonged to a violent criminal gang that that preyed upon travelers. People who, who deserve to be executed. Paul says, I am being treated. I am now suffering hardship. I am being treated like a violent, dangerous threat to Roman society. That's how I'm being treated for the sake of the gospel. Paul's first harness point, beloved, is to remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Second, rely on the word. Remember the gospel. Second, rely on the word. Notice the end of verse 9. But the word of God is not imprisoned. But the word of God is not imprisoned. I am imprisoned, but the word of God is not imprisoned. I can be silenced, but they cannot silence the word of God. It is power. And it is power that cannot be caged up. It cannot be subdued. It cannot be thwarted. It is free. It is free. Let me just remind you of how the Scripture speaks of itself. The Word of God. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Where Paul says there to the church at Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith first to last. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. It is the power of God. You can no more cage up, silence, neuter the word of God then you could God himself. You can imprison his preachers. You can behead them. You can even tear out their tongues, as has been historically done. But you cannot silence the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 12 and 13. The writer here says, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13, For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
It is living. It is active. It is sharper than any sword. And it pierces and penetrates to the very depth of the human existence. It cannot be silenced. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, speaks these well-known words. Isaiah 55, and beginning in verse 8. Isaiah 55, and beginning in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word never returns vain or void. It always accomplishes his purpose. In the preaching of the word of God here on a Sunday morning, the spirit of God uses the word of God in the hearts and minds of all who hear. For those who are his children, it encourages, it exhorts, it admonishes, it builds up in the faith. For those who have ears to hear, it saves their soul. And for those who are heart of heart, it merely reinforces their condemnation. But it never returns void. Beloved, listen to me. This morning, right here, right now, every single one of us is being acted upon by the Word of God. It is living, it is active. And might I say, you ignore it at your own peril. The psalmist in Psalm 19 and verse 7. After declaring the works and the wonder of God in creation, how he has made himself known through creation so that all are without excuse, he changes his focus and and he begins to, to hone in on the word of God. And he says in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It is the word of God that restores the soul. It is the word of God that gives wisdom to those who will hear it. Back to 2 Timothy.
Paul says, verse 9, the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason. For what reason, Paul? For the reason that the word of God is not imprisoned, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Listen, Paul is absolutely confident in the power and efficacy of the word of God. It is the word of God. And it never returns void. And because he is so sure of that, he is willing to endure the most horrific sufferings, knowing that it is part of God's good plan and through this and the proclamation of the gospel that God will call unto himself in the right time, according to his eternal plan, his chosen people. That's how the elect will be saved. As they hear, respond in faith to the Word of God. This is Paul's life. This is what the Lord set him upon. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Just listen. The Lord said to him, that is Ananias, right? Go to this man who is praying. All right, his name is Paul. And he says, but Lord... (laughs) This is the one who's trying to destroy the church. And and God says to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. For this reason I endure all things. For the sake of the elect. Listen, over in chapter 4, Paul says, verse 7, verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That little expression there in verse 7, I have finished the course. Listen, there were lots of places that Paul had never gone. There were lots of churches that he had planted that had all kinds of problems, all kinds of struggles. But Paul had been faithful to God's call upon his life, He had built his life upon the gospel. He had relied on the word of God. And at the end of his days, he can say, I have finished my leg of the race. I have done what God set upon me to do. Beloved, one writer said, God buries his workers, but continues his work. God buries his workers but continues his work. Someday God will bury me and God will bury you. It is the end of all of us. The question will be, is will we be able to say, I have 
finished my course. If our life is anchored to the gospel, if we remember the gospel and rely upon the scripture, upon the word of God, then in the end of our days, we too will be able to say, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there lies for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me and to all who love his appearing. May the Spirit of God take his word and bury it deep in our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, faithfulness is in short supply in this world. All around us, there are plenty who will promise one thing and do something quite different. There are many who proclaim their faithfulness, many who proclaim their loyalty. But Father, we want to be a people not who boast in our claims of faithfulness and loyalty, but a people whose lives testify to faithfulness and loyalty. Our Father, in a world that is very upside down, in a world that promises to grow more and more difficult, we need our hope to be firmly fastened in Christ. We trust not in human government. We trust not in the plans of men. We trust not in gold and silver. We trust not in the power of a military. We trust not in a, in a governmental system. We trust not in man, but we trust in Christ. And when we waver, Father, when our faith grows weary, when our memory fades, may you use your word to reignite the flame. For Jesus' sake, amen and amen.